Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. I'll extend my welcome to you as well. If I have not met you yet, if you're visiting with us, I would love uh, to meet you after the service today and get to know you. Uh, My name is Paul. You met Jeremy just now. He's one of our uh, other elders. And then Dan was the one reading scripture. He's our third elder. And uh, so you've already met all the elders. You've already met all the church leadership and elders. And so we're glad that you're here. Look forward to meeting you after a while. How's everybody doing this morning? Everybody good spirits? Somebody's getting married in about a week or so, give or take. Right there, yeah. That's good. That's why they're smiling. I hope you're doing well this morning. It's good to see you. We're in the book of Acts, chapter 15. We return back to the book of Acts after a couple of weeks away from Acts. Acts chapter 15. So if you would join me in standing for the reading of God's word, we're going to be reading Acts 15, starting at verse 1, going down all the way through verse 35. Acts 15, starting in verse 1, going down through verse 35. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem and to the, to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who are turned to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. 
For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. And this is what the letter said. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, They rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Can you tell me the story of Scripture? If I were to sit with you in my office or maybe in a classroom and ask you to tell me the story of Scripture, did you know that Scripture is one complete, unified story? It's not 66 books that are just randomly assorted and placed in there. It's actually one complete, unified story. Would you be able to tell me that story if I sat down and asked you? There are four words, four words that tell the story of Scripture. These are used commonly uh, when you're teaching someone the storyline of Scripture. Four words. Do you know what they are? Creation. That's where the story of Scripture starts. Creation. What comes after creation? Creation. Fall, you guys see, you know the storyline of scripture. Creation, fall, and then redemption. Creation, fall, and then redemption. And then the last word is... Maybe you don't know the story of scripture. No, this is good, this is good. Consummation, consummation. Creation... Fall, so creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Fall, Genesis 3. Redemption, the story picking up in Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation. Redemption, and then consummation, restoration. That's the story of Scripture. A lot of times in my classes when I'm sitting uh, with, with students there at Moody Aviation, we, uh, we do this little exercise, and I have them write out the storyline of Scripture. But instead of four, instead of four words, I give them 20 I give them 20. I say, tell me the 20 most significant passages, texts, events in Scripture that that lay out the scriptural storyline. 
would you include in those 20? I always give them the first and the last, creation and consummation, then fill in the other 18, right? What would you, what would you put on that list? It might not be a bad exercise to do with your discipling groups this week. What would be the 20 that you would put in there? What passages, what texts really tell you the storyline of Scripture? And this is extremely important for you as a believer to understand the storyline of Scripture. Well, this morning, we come to a passage in Acts 15 that I think should be on your list of 20. Acts chapter 15 should make your list. Whenever I ask students to do this, they very often do not put Acts 15 on the list, just to let you know. Because most people don't think of Acts 15 as as a significant passage. Here, in Acts 15 though, I think we approach one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. In this passage, we see the relationship of the New Covenant to the Old Covenant. The New Testament to the Old Testament. This passage contains for us an understanding of how, how is a new covenant believer to relate to the old covenant? What's the connection between the New Testament and the Old Testament? This passage, Acts 15, is the heart of the book of Acts. This is the heart of the book of Acts. You want to understand the book of Acts? Acts 15 is its heart. In fact, this is... Probably the main reason why I chose this book to go through over this last year with us. Because of Acts 15 and what it teaches us of our relationship to God. This chapter, Acts 15, is right in the middle of the book of Acts. It is a crescendo. A crescendo of all that has happened. And I think it is a crescendo, in fact, of the entire storyline of Scripture has immense biblical theological importance. But on top of that, because it's such a central passage for your understanding of God's plan of redemption, because it's so central to that, it has import for you and me for every day of our lives. You need desperately to understand what Acts 15 says. Or you will fail to see yourself rightly you will fail to understand God rightly. Acts 15 is important. Here's the main idea. Main idea of Acts 15 is this. God has granted his favor to all of mankind. God has granted his favor to all mankind. Do you understand God's favor? You you could say God's pleasure. You could say God's loving choice. God has granted his favor to all mankind. In the story of the Old Testament, God placed his favor on a people called the people of Israel. Do you realize that in the Old Testament? God placed his favor upon a people called the people of Israel. He chose 
their father, Abraham, out of the pagan nations, out of pagan idolatry. He chose Abraham, and his loving choice was upon Abraham and upon Abraham's family. God promised Abraham that he would bless Abraham and that he would give all blessings to Abraham and to his family. God's favor was upon Abraham and upon Abraham's family. It is because God's favor was upon Abraham and upon Abraham's family that God rescued them from captivity out of Egypt. Maybe you know that story, the story of the Exodus When God miraculously rescued his people from Pharaoh and from the Egyptians. Why did God rescue them? Because God's favor was upon them. God's loving choice was upon them. And so he rescued them because his favor was upon them. He took them out of Egypt and he brought them to a mountain, Mount Sinai. Maybe that is familiar for you. And there at Mount Sinai, he gave them a law. He gave them an instruction on how to live. And this is where people start misunderstanding. You see, the law was given to Israel not to obtain God's favor. The law was given to Israel because they had God's favor. He gave them instruction on how to live. He gave them instruction on how to live and, and live together as a people. And how to have a testimony to all the other nations that his favor was upon them. And, and this is the greatest part of all, how to live so that God could live in their presence. That was the greatest part of it. They were his people. And he wanted to live in their presence. Live in their midst. And so he gave them a law. Because his favor was upon them. He gave them a law to live by because they were the people of his favor. They were marked. They were marked by his grace. Again, this is where the misunderstanding is oftentimes. People think that law and grace are opposites. And they are not opposites. Law is grace. God communicating his will and his design and his instruction to his people. That is a sign of grace and favor. He gave them his favor and gave them, as a result of that favor, his law. It's like this with parents, isn't it? Do you have rules for your children? Do you have rules for your kids? Why do I have rules for my children? Because they are my children. I have rules for them because I love them. I have rules for them because I want to protect them. I have rules for them because I want them to live well. I have rules for them because I want them to prosper. My rules for them are not restriction. My rules for them are grace. And this is God's relationship to Israel. God put his mark upon them. They were the people of his favor. 
And because they had his mark of grace upon their lives, they were to be a testimony to all the other nations. All the other nations. Get this. This is what the law was meant to do. The other nations would look at Israel and say, Wow! What a gracious God they serve! He is a living God who supplies for all they need and loves them and protects them and causes them to do well. The mark of grace upon their life, which was the law, the mark of grace was meant to be a testimony to the world. And yet, if you know the story, God's people, Israel, refused his grace. Why would you ever refuse grace? But that is what they did. They refused his grace, spurned his law. They saw his law as restricting. And because they spurned his grace, because they refused his grace and loved their sin, God punished them by sending them into the exile. But even in this, do you see punishment as grace? Why did God punish his people Israel? Because of grace. They were his people. His favor was upon them. Why do I punish my children? Why do you punish your children? Discipline them as parents. Because you love them. It's grace. Oftentimes I'll have parents say, well, I just showed my son grace. You know, I, I, I didn't punish them. I showed them grace. No, you showed them mercy, which is a type of grace, to be sure. But, but discipline is grace. It's not the opposite of grace. Discipline and structure and law and rule, that's grace. God loved his people, but they did not love him back. And so he disciplined them. And even in the midst of that discipline, we saw last week as we looked at Ezekiel 37, even in the midst of that discipline, God promised them. God promised them that one day he would restore them. He would restore them to be his people again. But this time, when he restored them, when he saved them this time out of captivity, out of exile, he was going to give them his spirit and cleanse their hearts He was going to cleanse them from all their defilement and all their sin and give them his spirit and make them a people of his grace who were able to keep his law. What a promise. And why? Because they were the people of his favor. Because they were the people of his choosing. Well, this leads us then to Acts 15. Acts 15 has... A powerful message for us this morning as we seek to ask this question and answer this question how can we become people of God's favor how can we obtain the favor of God the situation here in Acts 15 is one that is full of tension. It is a church 
council, as it were, where the apostles and the elders of the Jewish church in Jerusalem get together to answer a question that has been brought up by the Antioch brethren. Remember, Antioch, far north in Syria, Antioch is composed of mostly Gentile believers. And there in that Gentile church, there have come believers from Jerusalem, or some from the church in Jerusalem, that have come up to Antioch and they've said, if you really want to be saved... You must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. If you want God's favor, if you want salvation from God, you must be circumcised. And Paul and Barnabas, they, it says they had no small dissension with them. They argued with them. They, they had a tense debate with them. And so they decided that they were going to send a contingent to Jerusalem to decide this question. Paul and Barnabas come down, or come up rather, to Jerusalem, up in elevation to Jerusalem. And there with the apostles and elders at the church in Jerusalem, they want to debate this question. And they debated a long time. And then Peter, Peter the apostle, stands up and he makes this argument. Look at it there in verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, did you notice how many times he uses the word brothers or the the word brothers is used throughout this passage? I think that's important. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. God has granted his favor to all mankind. And Peter gives us our first point this morning. How can we obtain God's favor? How can we be made part of the people of God? How can we obtain God's favor? This is the answer. God's favor is granted. It's given. God's favor is given. It's granted Through faith in Christ. God's favor is granted through faith in Christ. The Old Testament, the mark of God's people was the law. And it was a gracious law. But mankind could not keep it. And so now, God has placed his favor not on those who strive to keep the law. But God has placed his favor upon those who believe in Christ. I'll say it this way. God's favor is granted to those who are joined to Christ. 
by faith. Peter makes the point that God, God has done this work. It's God's plan, not man's idea. God appointed a messenger in Peter himself. God appointed a messenger to bring the word of the gospel to the Gentiles. Think about that. God appointed a messenger, Peter, to take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. You remember when that happened? If you've been with us through the book of Acts, do you remember when that happened? Acts chapter 10 and 11. You remember there was a man named Cornelius? He had, he had a fear of God, but he was not saved. He had never heard the message of Jesus. God told him that he would send someone to him to tell him how he could be saved. How can he obtain God's favor? And what did Cornelius do? Do you remember what Cornelius did? Cornelius went out and he got all of his friends together and he got all his family together and he said, come to my house. God's sending a messenger and he's going to tell us how to be saved. And sure enough, Peter showed up. And, and, and he said, hey, Peter, we're here. Cornelius said, we're here. Tell us. Tell us what God sent you to tell me. And Peter began to give the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus. His death and his resurrection. And as Peter was talking... As Peter was talking, he didn't even finish. As Peter was talking, boom, the Holy Spirit came down upon Cornelius and all those in his household because they had believed the gospel. They had believed the message. God showed his favor to Cornelius in that house by sending the word to them, the word of the gospel. Did you know did you know the fact that we have the word of God sitting on our laps here this morning? Did you know that this is an evidence of God's favor towards us? Do you see that? Did you know the Bible is, is, a, is an ever-present evidence of God's gracious disposition towards you? Because he doesn't have to tell you anything. He doesn't have to reveal anything to you. And yet he has. God has revealed himself and his plan for redemption to you. And you have his, his grace sitting on your lap every day. The fact that you're here in this room this morning is a proof of God's grace and goodness and favor towards you. I, I puzzle sometimes at those who read God's word as if God's trying to speak in riddles to them. Have you, have you ever had that disposition towards God? It's so difficult, so hard to understand. You approach the word as if, as if, you know, if God really cared about us, he'd make this a lot easier to understand. No, it, it's clear. It's, it's very simple. God has spoken and revealed do you know part of your obstacle in reading the Bible is that you, you somehow in your mind think that God, God wants to trick you or that God wants to hide himself from you or that God wants to make it really difficult for you to just show you how high and mighty he is and how lowly you are. That's what you think in your mind 
when you have that disposition. Did you know God wants you to know him? He's given you his word to know him. And the word, this word here, points to Jesus Christ and the favor that he offers to anyone who will be joined to Christ by faith. The word was sent to the Gentiles showing God's favor. And then as the word was being spoken, they believed and the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. And then it says, it says right here in verse number nine, the Holy Spirit was given to them just as he gave it to us, Peter says, and he made no distinction between us and them, between Jew and Gentile, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So here's what God did. God testified to the fact that these Gentiles were now his people because he gave them his spirit. And he cleansed their hearts. We've talked about this quite a bit. The spirit is given and the hearts are cleansed. What does that sound like? That sounds like the new covenant promised to Israel, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like the new covenant? Where he cleanses his people from their defilements. He cleanses them from their sins. Why couldn't Israel obey God? Because they were sinful. Their hearts were wicked. Desperately wicked. So God said, if you're going to be my people, I'm going to have to cleanse your hearts. I'm going to have to give you my spirit. I'm going to have to give you a heart of flesh. Replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And I'm going to do that work so that you can be my people. And here we see God has done that work for the Gentiles. God has done that work for you and me. He has given us his spirit. And he has cleansed us from our sin. He's cleansed us from our defilements. He's cleansed us from our sinful inclinations. He's given us a new heart that wants to love him and serve him. This is the new covenant given to his new people. God has given us his favor in Christ. And this is really important. This is really important. If you haven't listened or if you've kind of gone in and out of paying attention because you're thinking whether you've left the, left the toaster on this morning or something, connect again. Pay attention on this. I really believe people struggle believing God is favorable towards them and that God's favor is on them because they fail to understand the most important relationship The most important relationship. The most important relationship as it relates to God is not your relationship to God. Understand what I'm saying? The most important relationship that you need to understand this morning is not your relationship to God. I think sometimes we just think of our personal relationship to God and that's all we focus on. The most important relationship is not your relationship to God that you need to think about. The most important relationship this morning, this has changed your life. The most important relationship that you need to think about this morning is the father's relationship to his son. The father's relationship to his son. You remember when Jesus came And he was baptized and God spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
God, the Father, has a beloved son. And his love for his son is endless. It's eternal. It began in eternity past. And it will go into into eternity future. His love for his son. The father is always pleased with his son. The father is pleased with everything the son does. The father is pleased with everything the son says. Father is pleased with everything the son thinks. The father is always completely pleased with the son. You want to know who's got, who, who has God's favor? You want to know where God's favor is? It is upon his son. That is where his favor is. He loves his son. And here's, here's the wonderful truth. He has given you opportunity to be joined with his son by faith. What does that mean? That means those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, like Cornelius in his household, they were joined to Christ by faith. The life of Jesus, the spiritual life and relationship of Jesus to his father, that reality becomes ours. We are united with him in death. We are united with him in life. All of the favor that God has towards his son is ours. All of the favor that the father has towards the son belongs to us. It is ours. We have all of the favor of God by faith. In Christ, we are joined to him by faith. We are one with him. That is the source of divine favor. That is why we can know that God is pleased with us. That God loves us. I hear oftentimes people want to talk about the love that God has for them or the happiness or the pleasure that God has for them apart from Jesus. Is God happy with you apart from Jesus? Think about that question for a second. Sometimes that's all we focus on. I wonder if God's happy with me. Did I read my Bible enough? Did I pray enough? Did I go witnessing enough? Did I wear the right thing? Did I watch the right thing? Did I, did I drink or, or not drink? I mean, all these things that we worry about. Is God pleased with us? I don't know. I got to figure this out. And they're trying to figure this out apart from Christ. Can I, can I just hopefully give rest to your mind? God is not pleased with you apart from Christ. This is what scripture tells us. We are sinful, utterly lost, without the ability to please him. You cannot. But he loves his son. And if you will be joined, and if you are joined to Christ by faith, all of the favor of God the Father is yours. And you can never lose it. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Nothing. 
Romans 8 tells us. And God's favor is obtained the same way for both Jew and Gentile. God's favor is obtained the same way. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, it does not matter. God's favor is obtained the same way. It's obtained by faith. By joining to Christ by faith. Because God's favor is granted through faith in Christ, then we understand, number two, that God's favor is granted by grace. God's favor is granted by grace. God's favor is granted through faith in Christ. We're joined by faith to Christ. And God's favor is ours because of Christ. And so we understand that if we enjoy God's favor in Christ, this is given to us, this is granted to us by grace and grace alone. We just sang that song, didn't we? By grace and grace alone, we have God's favor. It is all grace. So Peter, in his little speech, he asks a question. Because this is all grace, because you obtain God's favor by grace, why would you test God? That's what he says. Look at it there. Verse 10. He says, now, therefore, therefore is a logical connective, right? Because of what I just said, because you believed in Christ by faith and have joined to him by faith, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why would you put God to the test? Why would you oppose or challenge what God has done by grace? You say, how do we do that? Have you ever heard the term legalism? I've been called a legalist. You've probably been called a legalist at some point. A lot of times people think legalism is just any type of rule or any type of rules or laws imposed. But legalism is a little bit more particular than that. Here's what legalism is. Legalism is requiring more than God requires to obtain his favor. Legalism is requiring more than God requires to obtain his favor. How do we obtain the favor of God? By being joined to Christ by faith. His favor is towards his son, and if we are united with his son, we have his favor. So what is legalism? Legalism is saying, yes, Jesus, he is the one who saves us, but if you really want God to be happy with you, fill in the blank. That's legalism. And it is an opponent of the gospel. It is not a light thing. It is not a small thing. It's not just a personality quirk. It's not just a a thing that we have to kind of, you know, look over for different people. No, legalism is opposition to the gospel. 
It's requiring more than God requires to obtain his favor. Why would you require more than God himself requires? Do you think that you are God? Then Peter makes the point, he asks the question, who has ever been able to keep the law? This is what he says. Why would you put yoke on the disciples? Why would you put a yoke on the disciples that neither you nor I nor any of us have ever been able to bear? He says, remember the law apart from Christ? Remember the law apart from the work of the Spirit and the regenerating work of the Spirit? Remember the law? We never were able to keep it. We could never do it. We never did enough. We turned away from God constantly. Why would you hold someone to that standard? You can't keep it. And yet so many of us, so many of us think that we have to live in such a way to please God and we, we heap bondage upon ourselves and upon other people by requiring more than God requires to obtain his favor. Legalism has really two victims. The first is yourself. I said earlier, how many, how many of you this morning or maybe this past week wondered if God was unhappy with you because you didn't read your Bible? Maybe, maybe you didn't pray enough. Maybe I don't know how to pray. I, I wonder if, if I'm praying and God's even hearing what I'm praying. Or maybe we think God is going to bless us because we've done some things for him. You know, I've been pretty faithful this week. God's surely to bless me because of my faithfulness. God's surely to give me what I want because I have been so good. No, that's legalism. God's favor for you is everlasting and it cannot be lost. You don't have to please God this week in order to gain his favor. You have it in Jesus. And both Jew and Gentile are saved through this grace. Both Jew and Gentile are saved through this grace of the Lord Jesus. The other victim is others. We, we burden ourselves with this wrong thinking about our relationship to God because we separate it from Christ. We think of ourselves wrongly and, and we judge others based upon these standards. We judge others and their lives and, and require more of them than God himself requires to give them his favor. Have you ever caught yourself doing this? Looking at people? How they act? Maybe it's what type of school they send their kids to. Did you know that 
whatever school you send your kids to is not the way you obtain favor from God. Did you know that? But some people think God's pretty happy with them because they send their kid to a particular school. And then that legalism trickles over to others. Well, <laughs> you know, if, if, if they really were biblical, if they really were faithful, they would do like we do. No, you're, you're requiring more than God requires to obtain his favor. The application of this. The applications are too many. I want you this morning to see God's favor towards you. That it is connected to your relationship, to your union with Christ and nothing else. And because of that, and this is key, I do not have to live to try to gain God's favor. I don't have to live to try to gain God's favor. I already have it in Christ. But now, because I have his favor, I want to live for him. I want to live. Are you living out of God's favor for you or are you living to try to gain God's favor this morning? Are you living out of his grace for you and out of his favor for you? Are you living trying to gain it and trying to win it, trying to obtain it? Why does God give his favor? God's favor granted through faith in Christ, being joined by faith with Christ. God's favor is granted by grace. It's all grace, nothing but grace. You can't merit it. You can't earn it. You can't do anything for it. You can't pay enough for it, go to church enough for it, can't be good enough for it. No, it's all of grace. And why? Why does he give his favor? Because God is forming a new people in Christ. God's favor is granted to form a new people in Christ. That's point number three. God's favor is granted to form a new people. God's people, the people of his favor, are no longer Jew, no longer Gentile. The people of his favor are in Christ. That is who his people are, marked by Christ. God has moved to take a people for his name from the Gentiles. This is what James goes on to say. He quotes Amos. He talks about the tent of David being restored. He talks about the tent of David being restored. And and now the nations can come into that tent. There's a debate about whether that means his kingdom or the temple. The idea is, though, that, that God has restored. He has kept his promise to Israel. And now, because he has kept his promise to Israel, the Gentile nations can come in and be all under this tent with the, with the Jewish people. The Jew and the Gentile both living under this tent together. Amazing. He's moved to take a people for his name from the Gentiles. Both Jew and Gentile benefit from his grace, both saved by faith, both saved by grace. And then, and maybe you caught this as we were reading through, James at the end, James, the pastor there at the church in Jerusalem, he he says, let us only require this. And maybe you go, ho, 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 ha, trying to sneak one past me. 
We are not gaining his favor by the law. It's through Christ. So why are you giving us requirements? What's the point of these requirements? Did you see the requirements there? Look at verse 20. He says in verse 19, We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What's going on with that? Here it is. Each one of these requirements is connected to pagan idolatry and the table fellowship. So pagan idolatry, this is what, just as their father Abraham was saved out of, by the way, this is what these Gentiles are being saved out of. Pagan idolatry, where they would sacrifice, make sacrifices to idols and then sit around a table and eat. A lot of times those meals would be accompanied by sexual immorality, lasciviousness, sin, and so what they're, in effect, saying to the Gentiles is, you have God's name upon you. You are the people of God's favor. Live like it. Leave your pagan idolatry. Leave the pagan tables of idol worship and sexual immorality. And do everything, this is so important, do everything in your power to maintain the fellowship, the unity with your Jewish brethren. You put Gentile and Jew under one tent, that's going to cause a lot of disunity. That's going to be a recipe for disharmony. So he says to the Gentiles, Leave your pagan idolatry and do everything possible to maintain the unity of the fellowship with your Jewish brethren. The fact that God's favor has been granted to the Gentiles has some implications for their life. Again, as I already said, you have God's name upon you. You have God's favor upon you. So you should live like it. One of of the great misunderstandings of the Christian life or a life of grace, again, is that a life of grace shouldn't have any rules or shouldn't have any imperatives. No commands upon your life. No, it's, it's, it's not that at all. Because we are the people of God's favor, now we should be very careful in how we live. Because we want to testify to his grace. Just ask very quickly, do you see the grace in the imperative? As I said earlier about my children or your children, right? You give them rules because you love them. God's favor is upon you and he cares very much about how you live. His favor cannot be withdrawn from you. Your standing with God is secure in Christ. Because of that, we should care how we live. Really, it's a difference of perspective. 
It's wanting to please God because He is our Father. He is our good and gracious Father. It is wanting to please Him versus having to please Him. That's it. You have His favor. Don't you want to please the God who loves you so much? Do you, be, do you believe his love for you? It said the, to the Gentiles, you, you have God's name upon you, now you need to live like it. And you want to pursue unity with your Jewish brethren. The Jewish brethren, this, this principle is fleshed out better in Romans 14. We're not going to go to Romans 14 and spend a whole message on it. This is, this is so important though. How are we to live with people and, and pursue unity with them? We need to be careful how we live in front of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to care about them. The Jewish believers, they believed that they had to keep the law. This was their, this was their definition as the Jewish people. The book of Hebrews hasn't happened yet. And here, James is saying, be careful how you live with your Jewish brothers. Be careful to maintain that unity. And then, this little remark at the end about in every city Moses is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. I think what he's speaking of there is this opportunity as the people of God's favor, this ongoing opportunity to be a witness to the Jewish people who are still lost. The Jewish people who are still lost in every one of these cities. What an offense it would be for Gentiles to, to rub their freedoms in the face of these Jewish lost people. I think he's saying three things. Leave your pagan idolatry. He's saved you. He's cleansed you. So now pursue holiness and righteousness in your life. Be sensitive to the Jewish brethren. Be sensitive to their convictions. Be sensitive to what they, what they think about eating with a Gentile. Be sensitive to that. And think about your personal witness. Think about your witness and testimony and the opportunity you have to testify of the grace of God to the lost Jewish people. Let me give you a set of questions and we'll be done. Just, just I'm going to walk through them very quickly. Do you believe, do you believe that God's disposition towards you is one of grace and goodness? Do you believe that God's disposition towards you is gracious? Do you believe that God loves you, is good and gracious towards you? Do you believe, I'll put it this way, do you believe God's happy with you? I think if we answered that question honestly in our hearts, I, I think we would, we would struggle to say yes to that. I hope he is, right? You would say, I hope he is. I, I, tr I try. No. It's not about you trying. It's not your effort. It's about being joined to Christ by faith. Do you believe that God is pleased with you in Christ? Do you believe that God's happy with you? If you do not, it shows up in how you live and how you demand other people live around you. 
I, I resisted telling you story after story of anecdotal stories about independent fundamental Baptist world that I come out of, but there are so many stories of people heaping more requirements to obtain God's favor than God requires. If you do not believe God is happy with you through Christ, it's destroying your life, your joy. It's ruining your relationships with people around you. And it's, it's not bringing peace in your relationships in the church. Can I just ask you simply, have you been joined to Christ by faith? Have you been joined to Christ by faith? Do you see who Jesus is? He is the beloved Son of God who came and gave Himself. Not, not for sin that He committed. No, He gave Himself. And in giving Himself, He took sin upon Himself that was not His. It was the sin of His people He took upon Himself. He died and then rose again and by rising again defeated the sin and death of His people so that now He can bring His people into the favor of God. And they can be his people forevermore. Have you believed upon Christ, his death and resurrection? Have you been joined to Christ by faith? If you have, there is nothing that can separate you from Christ. Nothing. Do you see your tendency this morning towards legalism? Do you see your tendency towards legalism either in how you think about yourself or how you think about others? What, what, what irritates you in the life of other people? Where's your line at in measuring whether other people are truly faithful or not to God? Tr- true, faithful people would do these things. What do you think makes you righteous? What do you think gains you acceptability in God's sight? What do you think gains God's favor in your life? We have that saying around my house every once in a while. When I get going and I, and I notice legalism in my own heart and life, I'll stop and I say, yep, yep, and it makes me righteous. It makes me righteous, this personal conviction I have, doesn't it? The answer is no, it does not. It does not make me righteous. And I need to check myself. Here's a question for you. Is your anti-legalism legalism? Is your anti-legalism legalism? I'm not a legalist like those legalists out there. And you become a legalist. I please God because I live freely. No, your, your favor with God is secure in Christ and Christ alone. That is it. Be careful of anti-legalism, or some people call this antinomianism. That's the fancy name for it. Do you think that being saved by grace means that now it doesn't matter how you live? Do you think being saved by grace means now that it doesn't matter how you live? I would, I would just challenge you, it matters more now how you live. But you're not living to please God. You're living because God is pleased with you. His favor is upon you. And that has all types of meaning and import for your life and how you live. It does matter what you watch. 
See, this is why I have to be careful because we could get going. It does matter. Christian, it does matter what you watch. You, you don't watch certain things to please God or no, don't watch certain things to please God. You, you have God's favor in Christ. And because of that, it matters a lot what you watch. It matters a lot what you listen to. It does matter how you project yourself to lost people. It does matter. You should live very carefully out of God's favor for you, not to win his favor. It does matter. And do you realize how difficult it is? Do you realize how difficult it is to pursue unity? Do you realize how difficult it is to put away our legalism and pursue unity with one another? Yet this is what he died for. This is what Christ gave himself for, to make a people unified in him. It is difficult, but it is necessary. What separates you from others in this body? What makes you think you're better than they are? What causes you to judge them? What causes you to not love them and extend grace to them, mercy to them? Father, we thank you for... Thank you for this word. Thank you for Acts 15. We thank you that you have, by your sovereign good providence, God, you have foreordained, you have predestined that we should find your favor in Christ. And I pray that that would be, that you would help us make that relationship, that reality, front and center in our mind that we would cease striving to live for your favor and see that we have already obtained it in Christ, and that we would live out of that favor, out of that grace, and that we would let this reality begin to sink into our hearts and minds, how we view ourselves and our lives, and also how we view others in the body here, and then how we see the lost. Lord, you have given us your favor to testify to the truth of who you are. Lord, help us to be separate in our thoughts, in our way of living. Separate, not for separation's sake, but, but in order to testify to your goodness and grace to bring others to know Christ. I pray that you would be glorified and honored in our lives as this church as we go to wherever we work or live or recreate every way we would show that we are the people of your favor, your grace. Pray this in your name. Amen.